This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. Great to have you with us again. How is a Christian to respond when he looks across his culture and sees vulgarity, sexual immorality, corruption, secular humanism, and even outright political anarchy? These are disturbing days for all of us. But my next guest says this isn't the time for the church to give up or to become despondent because the same God who created this world and sent Jesus Christ to redeem us is still sitting on his throne and presiding over his unshakable kingdom. How then should we live and respond? Well, joining us now is Dr. Stephen Nichols, president of Reformation Bible College, chief academic officer of Ligonier Ministries and a Ligonier teaching fellow. He also serves as an adjunct professor for Reformed Theological Seminary and is a visiting lecturer at Westminster Theological Seminary's program at the John Owen Center in London. And today we're going to be talking about his new book. It is called A Time for Confidence, Trusting God in a Post-Christian Society. Dr. Nichols, it's great to have you here. How are you? I'm doing well. It's nice to be on your show. Good to talk to you. I think just reading your title cheered me up because there's a lot to be despondent about these days. Maybe it's just the job that I have. I don't know. No, you know, and I, I, listening to you, you're exactly right. You look around and you see the present moment that we live in, and it's bleak. There's a lot of discouraging things. I, I sort of mentioned in the book, uh, you could sort of pull a, a Rip Van Winkle, you know, and if you'd gone into a deep sleep. Yes. But the thing here is, you you could have just done that, I don't know, three years ago, maybe? Yeah. yeah. And it's the rapidity. It's not just what we're seeing. It's the rapidity of the change that sort of has us just scratching our head and wondering. And uh, so I thought, let's let's try to think biblically and let's try to think theologically about this moment we find ourselves in. Right. No, the rapidity is such a great point. It's like a snowball gathering speed down a hill, right? Like you said, the three years ago, if Rip Van Winkle woke up now from a three-year nap, he'd go, what? What, you redefined marriage? Where am I? What's going on here? Exactly. Yeah, Yeah. it was that quick. It was that quick. Now, you know, for a long time, we have heard theologians talk about the problem of postmodernism. Would you say that that has morphed into something beyond postmodernism, or how would you characterize our age theologically and maybe in terms of movements, ideological movements like postmodernism? Sure. You know, I use the the subtitle is uh, that we are to be trusting God in a post-Christian society. I think anyone who spent some time in Europe sort of gets a sense of the post-Christian nature of Europe. You've got these grand cathedrals. You know, here we are, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. You've got these cities where the Reformers once just thundered the Word of God. You've got these grand cathedrals. And they're just tourist attractions. Yeah. You know, they stand empty. And you look at the rise of, say, the practice of Islam and these formerly reformed Christian uh, countries. And so we speak of Europe as post-Christian. I think in many ways we sort of are either in or rapidly heading towards a post-Christian America. 
this we've always had a relativistic ethic afoot, yes. but it's it seemed to have been kept in check. There was a sense in which there was a respect for what we would have labeled Judeo-Christian values, and within recent turn of events, those have been set aside for a very almost rabid secularism and relativism. And so I think it's safe to say that what we are experiencing is a post-Christian culture. Now, that's probably not true of all towns, you know, in all places across America, uh, but you certainly see it. And you certainly see it in in the media and in some of those cultural, what we call the gatekeepers of culture. Absolutely. We see that post-Christian worldview. Yeah. And you touched on something important when you said there had always been kind of this respect for Christians, even if people were secular, even if people didn't go to church, there was sort of a go along, get along. Okay, I'm fine with Christians. I'm not one, but I'm okay. The hostility, though, is what is new. And the willingness of so many people to express out outright hostility toward Christians. We've seen situations like this Baron L. Stutzman case that's just come down where she was found guilty of, uh, this is this florist in Washington, where she was found guilty of violating anti-discrimination laws simply because she told two homosexuals, I'll serve you in my floral shop. I just don't want to participate materially in your same-sex wedding. Yeah. What about this hostility? Why do you think it's getting so hostile? Yeah. You know, I think that it's, You've got to look at it on two levels. I think on the one hand, there's always been hostility to the gospel. It's always been offensive. You know, we see this right in the pages of the New Testament, that Christ himself was a stumbling stone, an offense, and the gospel itself is presented as an offense. Right. I think what is catching us off guard, and, you know, you you could say, well, was a Christian America a myth? How deep was that Christian commitment of a Christian America? Was it a lot of nominalism? Whatever you want to say about it, coming out of the 70s, 80s, 90s, even into the zeros, as you were saying, there's a sense in which that the Christianity formed a core of American civil society. Right. It was almost as if in order to be a respectable, you needed to be a, a member of a church yes. if you wanted to. <laughs> now that's a detriment. And so that that turnaround that that we're seeing may be that what we're experiencing now, the hostility, is more the norm. And what we had experienced was the anomaly rather than the other way around. Yeah. Uh, so we might just be experiencing what most of our brothers and sisters in Christ have experienced yeah, through the centuries. Yeah, that's a good point, that we had a nice reprieve that we were used to, but it's an anomaly in the history of the church. I think it is. And even, you know, you look at our brothers and sisters around the globe, many of them face incredible situations of hostility and persecution down here at Ligonier, where we're trying to work with some folks to get some materials in Arabic, and they are in sensitive countries, and we pray for the security of their lives for the work they're doing. So, you know, we face hostility, we face persecution, but we also recognize the intensity with which some of those in other places of the globe 
the, the intensity of the persecution they face for right. their faith. It's a challenge. Well, you know, I was reading about this uh, poll that was taken. Christianity Today just reported on this. And they said evangelicals are the only religious group in the U.S. that has not developed a better reputation over the past few years. And Americans have become less likely to know an evangelical more so than any other faith tradition. And I thought, well, that's a tragedy because we're supposed to be going out into the world and proclaiming the gospel. How is it that you would surmise more Americans don't know any evangelicals? I always thought there were plenty of us to go around, but maybe not. Right. The, uh, we're supposed to be the salt and light, right, yes. in, our, in our world. Well, I think it's twofold. I, I think one is there is a growing hostility towards Christianity on behalf of those sort of gatekeepers. It was always there in the university. Uh, you, you see it in the media. You see it in those who are pushing pop culture. You know, I, I can tell you, I almost to the day I heard it, the first time I heard it, the, the, um, there's a rapper named Mac Lamore, oh, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Very popular. And he did his true love song, yeah. which celebrates a, a same-sex relationship. Yeah. And then the video went along with it. And when I heard about that, I thought, this is the beginning of the end. Mm-hmm. That that... that represents such a thing. Now, I think in 2014, when that song was released, prior to the Supreme Court case, but in rap music of all places, which sort of had this macho culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, almost misogynist culture yeah. of rap music, you had that song. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you've got a lot of flexing of the muscle of those who hold the keys to culture. On the other hand, the church has really obscured the gospel. Many places in the church, we've sort of given up our birthright. Mm. We've given up on our theological identity. And so when we find ourselves in a situation where we're not at war, so to speak, we can maybe survive a little bit. But all of a sudden, once the heat is turned up, once the pressure comes in, we don't have the wherewithal to stand. Oh my! Because we've we've sort of we've sold away that stability and that structure that we need to help us stand. Well, I'll tell you what: we're going to get into a time for confidence, trusting God in a post-Christian society. When we come back on Janet Meffer today, my guest, Dr. Stephen Nichols from Reformation Bible College. We'll be back after this. Hi, this is Janet Mefford. Did you miss the deadline to sign up for a healthcare program at the end of 2020? If so, I have good news. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th, meaning that if you're looking to enroll in a new healthcare program for 2021, you can do so without the need for a qualifying event. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their healthcare needs. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that offers affordable healthcare sharing programs starting as low as $199 per month. Liberty HealthShare gives you the ability to choose any doctor or hospital across the nation. Memberships are for individuals, couples, and families, offering a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. 
Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn has 10 centers that do not have ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-BABY, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. And if you look across the landscape, it can be demoralizing. There is so much in the media, so much in Hollywood, so much on the internet, so much in our daily lives, in school, and in our neighborhoods that can really, really shake us out of our lethargy and make us confront the truth that we are increasingly living in a post-Christian society. But as Dr. Stephen Nichols points out, it is a time for confidence. That's the title of his new book we're talking about. So let's get into the good news here. Dr. Nichols, we kind of were covering all the bad news, but we're, we're leading toward the good news, which is we do have reason for confidence. And the first reason that you give in the book is we should have confidence in God himself. Such a basic truth, but why do we need to start there and say, Church, you can be confident in God. I start there because I wanted to start with Isaiah chapter 40. I I love Isaiah chapter 40, and I think you could just camp out there. Here's the situation. Israel is on the eve of captivity by Babylon. This is a superpower. Israel is just this tiny nation. So the prophet Isaiah is writing this book on the eve of captivity. Now, he's looking past the captivity, and he's writing to those who will be in exile. And after Babylon comes along Medo-Persia, this is Cyrus. One of his titles was the king of the four corners of the universe. Mm. So this was a tyrant that makes our rulers today, you know, look like they're playing with blanks. Mm. This was just a, a vicious ruler. Israel was under his thumb. And along comes the prophet to say, you will be judged, you will be taken out of the land because you broke the covenant, but God will restore you, God will deliver you. And Isaiah chapter 40 begins with these wonderful words, comfort, oh comfort my people, right? The hills will be made flat and you'll be brought right back into the promised land. And at verse 9 of chapter 40, Isaiah says this, behold your God. And I think what we gain there is vision. You know, if all we see is what's on the horizon, we see this post-Christian moment we're talking about, we can get discouraged. Right. We need that prophetic vision to remember what is real, what is eternal, and we need someone to say to us, behold your God. You know, here's the present moment, but here's the eternal reality. Mm-hmm. And so I want to start there. We need to lodge our confidence 
in God. I love that. And and also in Isaiah 40, you mentioned the verses beyond that, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 begins, Behold, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. And there's that sense of, oh, our Lord is so strong and mighty and we can depend on him. And then in verse 11, like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. So he's both mighty and but he's also a shepherd. And it reminds us of his character, that he not only is strong, but he is good, that he loves us. And that, that's something we need to hear now. Oh, it's, it's beautiful. And the more we just think about who God is, the more that will help us. You know, you can sit and watch the news programs in the evening and just sort of be depressed. Mm-hmm. Grab Isaiah, <laughs> grab the Psalms, uh, it, read and, and just remember who God is. And that will just give so much balance and stability to these moments we find ourselves in. Well, this is a good segue, because when we are considering our God and going through these passages, as you've mentioned, Isaiah 40 or some of the Psalms, that necessitates opening the Bible. <laughs> now, this is another subject, right? I, we, you guys have been on top of these things, Bible illiteracy statistics, and how yeah. even in the church, people aren't reading and studying their Bibles the way they ought to be doing. What about the importance of the Word of God itself and this, as I call, nuclear bomb that we have right at our disposal as the yeah. sword of the Spirit? You know, there, there's no possible way to overestimate the power of God's Word. And we come into a moment here where, well, first of all, the Bible's under attack. Yep. We have to see it. Yeah. You, you, you look at Genesis, just whether it's the same-sex issue, or whether it's the transgender issue, or whether it's sanctity of life issue, whatever it is, all three of those are in the first two chapters of the book of Genesis. Yes. And those are, those are, you can't turn on the news and not see something related to those three things. So we, we need to recognize that there is a frontal assault on the Word of God. Now, what I'm concerned about is that we as a church somehow begin to think, well, maybe the Word of God isn't so relevant to life in the 21st century these days. And we begin to question what is a wonderful doctrine of Scripture. Theologians will talk about the authority of Scripture— in its inerrancy and its infallibility, but they also talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Right. And that's really where the rubber meets the road. I can affirm that the Bible is God's Word, but do I read it? Do I seek it, its wisdom for my life? And then here's the big one. Do I submit to it, or do I somehow think it has to submit to me? That, that's really, we almost have to ask that question every day of our lives yeah, as Christians. We and we need to get into God's Word so that we are saturated with His Word. This is, this is really what renewing our minds is about. Yeah, that's it. It's that's being it. in God's Word. I'm going to throw a little curveball at you, Dr. Nichols, but I know you can yeah. handle it. Since we were talking about the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, which is this year, what do you think Luther would be like in an age like ours? What do you think he? How would you think he would well, respond? You know, yeah, no, I appreciate the question a lot. I think in some ways, right, a new darkness has settled over our culture. Yeah, and a lack of the clear proclamation of the gospel. Right. You know, we don't have time probably to get into all this, but there are evangelical theologians. These would be theologians who should know better, <laughs> who claim to be evangelicals, who deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. I know. Oh. And, and who deny justification by faith alone. Yeah. And you think, that's the gospel. It is. And, and so I think Luther would say, 
hey, it's time for another Reformation. I'm going to grab my mallet and I'm going to go find a church door somewhere. Yeah, give me a nail. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a nail. (laughs) Here we go. Here we go again. But I can't imagine Luther in an age like ours having compromising, nuanced conversations and trying to find a middle ground. I mean, I just can't see him doing that, but I see that across the church landscape. So many people are thinking, this is the way we deal with the culture. We find common ground and maybe we can all be friends. When has that ever been the case when the church itself and when the gospel of Christ was under assault? You know, there's really, when, when you find yourself in that moment where the ground is shaking beneath your feet and shifting beneath your feet and you don't, you don't feel at home anymore, you have two impulses. One is to go hide in a cave somewhere and just wait for Christ to come back. That's not a biblical, faithful response. No. The other is to compromise, and we see this left and right. Yep. We see it among Christian leaders. We, you, you've seen wholesale compromise on Christian denominations yes. in the last several years, whether it's same-sex issue or just whatever it is in terms of biblical faithfulness. You've seen them compromise. That's where we have to say, no, this is not only a time for confidence, this is a time for conviction. Mm-hmm. And that's where the Reformers were. Th- these were men of conviction. And we forget sometimes, you know, Luther, he, was, he had colleagues and associates, but initially he was standing alone. Right. It was Luther against the world. Yeah. And he was so firm in his convictions. And that's, and that's what he does. At the, at the Diet of Worms, he says, here I stand. And that's what we need to be. We, yeah. need, we, we cannot afford to compromise. We sure can't. And this comes down to what Luther also inhabited, and that was this confidence in Christ and confidence in the gospel, as you've already talked about. Now, when you talked earlier about confidence in God, people may say, well, how can you separate God from Christ? You have the first person of the Trinity, you have the uh, second person of the Trinity. But Christ's saving work on our behalf is the gospel. This is what we must put right in the center of everything we do. How do we do that, though? Hmm. You know, first, I think we have to realize the true power of the gospel. I was looking at this in Philippians chapter 1. Paul is under house arrest, or under arrest rather in Rome, and he has the Praetorian Guard. These are the elites. This is like SEAL Team Six, right? <laughs> you can imagine these guys. Yeah. And what is Paul saying? That his imprisonment in Christ is known throughout the entire Praetorian Guard, and now the brothers and sisters in Rome. This is Nero's Rome. Are confident and boldly proclaim the gospel. Right. So in this moment, we don't cower. We don't think, well, the gospel, it can't prevail against these winds. They're so strong. No, we need to recognize that we must have a confidence in the gospel. The other thing that the gospel teaches us is the gospel teaches us to rest in Christ. You know, here's, here's Luther's famous Mighty Fortresses are God hymn. And he has that line in there, did we in our own strength confide? Yes our striving would be losing. And that's ultimately what the gospel teaches us. Yes. The gospel teaches us no to human strength, no to human achievement, and the gospel points us to Christ. And along comes Luther in that hymn and says, one little word shall fell them. Yes. Yes. And that word above all earthly powers is Christ. So that's where we need to put our confidence. I love that. And a confidence, as you stress, in hope. What are you aiming at there? Eternal hope? 
Well, I think it is an eternal hope, but it's a it's a living hope, and that's what's the beauty of a biblical hope. For there's two things that I find beautiful about how the New Testament authors teach us uh, about hope. One is that it's a certainty. So you know we can hope for a lot of things. <laughs> it doesn't. That's more like a wish dream. When Scripture talks about hope you can bank on it because God is a faithful God. So that's the first thing we have to grasp. When we say hope, biblically speaking, we're talking about a certainty. But the second thing, it's always a hope for now. And you see this in 1 John chapter 3, in those first three verses. And John says, whoever has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So you're looking at this against the backdrop of the first century, a decadent, hedonistic Roman culture sliding right into barbarianism. And here we are in the 21st century in a decadent, immoral culture. And what do we need to do? Live pure lives. That's it. A Time for Confidence, the name of the book by Dr. Stephen Nichols. Thank you so much, Dr. Nichols, for being with us. And we'll be right back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Meffer today. Proverbs 15, 18 tells us a hot-tempered person stirs up conflict, but the one who is patient calms a quarrel. This is an excellent reminder for Christian parents who may be dealing with angry children. Patience calms a quarrel. What do you do, though, if those quarrels come frequently and dealing with your child's anger becomes increasingly difficult? We're going to get some advice on that today from Trisha Goyer. She is a homeschooling mom of 10, a grandmother of four, and her book is called Calming Angry Kids, Help and Hope for Parents in the Whirlwind. Welcome, Tricia. So good to have you here. How are you? I'm doing good. Thank you, Janet, for having me. Good. I feel like I'm taking you away from kids just by interviewing you. (laughs) (laughs) They're in the other room. I told them to keep quiet. You might hear them. (laughs) (laughs) I've been there. God bless you. I'm glad that you were able to join us. You really have a full house. So tell me a little bit about your experiences with angry kids. You obviously have experience with this. Yeah. So after John and I had nearly raised three biological kids, to adulthood, we decided to open our home to adoption. First, we adopted one, then a sibling group of two, then a sibling group of four. Mm. And you can imagine the chaos and the just the challenges of adding kids to your home. But really, the biggest struggle was the anger that we saw. It was something that we really didn't expect. But you know, once they moved in the home, I realized they'd been hurt so much. Um, the girls, older girls that we adopted were between the ages of 11 and 14 when we got them. So they had many years of, um, of abuse, of pain, of being moved around in the foster care system. And so all this emotion had built up. And now that they're in a safe place, it kind of exploded. And I didn't know how to handle it. I'd been a mom for 23 years this time, and I didn't know what to do with the kids. So we went to trauma therapy and just learned a lot of great tools for dealing with angry kids. Wow, that's tough. And, and of course, your three biological children, I'm sure they got angry at times too, maybe for different reasons, but you have to deal with anger with all kids at some point. Yes, absolutely. And it was a different type of anger. It was the 
um, you know, the fits that lasted 30, 45 minutes, throwing <laughs> things, the, um, you know, saying really horrible things to you just to try to stir your anger, which I never thought I was an angry person until I have a, you know, 13-year-old screaming in my face, and then I really had to work to control my anger. So it was, you know, I, I think there's a lot of kids, I mean, every kid faces anger at one time or the other, but um, sometimes some kids just struggle with anger more than others. True. That's true. Without getting into too much detail, when you're talking about, for example, one of the instances where you had one of your adopted children or former foster children experiencing anger, not related necessarily to your home, but related to what that child had already been through, what sorts of things came up just in general? Yeah. So one of the things, like, for example, um, we were camping and one of my little six-year-olds who was also adopted, she burnt herself and I was tending to her. One of the 13-year-olds ran up and said, oh, I, I burnt myself last night too. And I said, okay, I'll take care of you in a minute. And all of a sudden, this anger came out of her that she was yelling at me. She ran off. She was going to run away. And I just didn't understand. Hmm. But that had triggered all other people in her life that she felt didn't care for her. It pushed her to the side. And in that moment, it wasn't anything. I mean, I was just trying to deal with a screaming six-year-old. I wasn't meaning to hurt her feelings. But it was those types of things that would kind of trigger things. And there's many things that trigger. That was something from her past. But, you know, even with every parent, there's things like if our kids are hungry, if they're overwhelmed, if they're anxious, if they're nervous, um, if they're sad, all these things can trigger anger. And often parents don't understand where the anger is coming from. Um, I think that's why it's so important to pause and really ask the kid what is going on and find out why they're exploding in this anger. Yeah, that's right. So you do have different types of anger, as you've mentioned, the mild anger to the rage. You can have all kinds of a range of emotions when it comes to anger. But you can also have the length of anger uh, coming across as being different. For example, you might have a child who has a brief temper tantrum, and then you might have a child who's angry every single day. Now, Mm -hmm. in the second circumstance, you mentioned going to trauma therapy with your children who needed longer term help. But what do you say to the mom, for example, or the dad who's listening, who says, I have a child who wakes up angry, is angry all day and goes to bed angry. What in the world do I do? I love my child, but I can't seem to reach him. Yeah. And I had that situation. I went to therapy and one of the things they said is they wanted me to set aside five to 10 minutes a day to just spend time in a non-angry moment with that child. So with the older teen, it might be like doing our nails or looking at a magazine that they're interested in, um, looking at funny videos on um, YouTube that they want to share with me. The younger kid, it might be sitting down and playing toys and really letting them know you have full, their full attention. Um, so you might be you know, talking about you know, praising them for what they're doing or what their activity is. Like if my little son was lining up his cars, I'd even say, great job lining up the cars or um, you you did such a good job sharing with mommy, sharing your cars. And it seems like, what does this have to do with anger? (laughs) But I think so many times kids have this feeling like there's not the connection with us. And so they feel maybe we're rushed all the time. We're always putting them down or, you know, what they, what we may see is just like telling them to pick up their toys. Right. They may see like we're um, putting them down and really spending that time in a non-angry moment, building the bond amazingly helps in the angry moments. And then they don't see us as the enemy, but someone who does really love them and care for them and is there and supports them. And it's amazing how we usually just go through life, kind of going through our day and just pausing to spend that time can make a huge difference. How do you do that though, Trisha, with the number, the sheer number of children that you have in your home? Because that certainly has to stretch you and stretch your husband and it must wear on you after a while, just being needed so much. 
Absolutely. And some mornings I'm like, okay, everyone, I cannot help you all at this moment. <laughs> so usually I'll kind of you know pray about it and just take inventory of the day and take inventory of the kids. I have one, my eight-year-old just loves quality time sitting on my lap, being held. And so if I see that she's kind of pouty and angry, I know she just needs some quality time. So I'll just pull her to the side. Um, one of my older daughters today, she's like, mom, can I help you cook dinner? And she was coming up with some things and I knew she wanted that mom one-on-one time. Nice. And so I kind of see the ones that are more vocal about it, but also the ones that are quiet, that kind of pull away, that doesn't seem like maybe they're exploding in anger, but there's something you kind of tell they're holding inside. I'll try to just, you know, take, again, it's five minutes, take them to the side and say, hey, what's going on? And what happened yesterday? And just trying to figure out what's happening. And really, I think so many times we think we have to take the child to lunch and take them out and do all these right. things. But taking that five to 10 minutes, pulling them to the side, stopping our busy pace and just focusing on that child can go a long, long way. Now, what do you do, Tricia, when you have a moment where the child is just completely irrational? I mean, it, it, I've been there. I'm sure every mother has been there at some point yes. where the kid is just mad. And no matter how I talk to the child or spend time with the child, he's just in a bad mood today. How do you handle that situation as a mom when, when you encounter that sort of thing? Yeah, well, one of the things I learned, it's called flipping the lid. So when the child is angry and emotional, their lid is flipped. So imagine your hands are on a fist. If their fingers are up, the finger part isn't touching your palm. And there's no connection between their thinking brain and their feeling brain. So once they're feeling in in the middle of emotion, they're not thinking. So anytime, I think so many times we try to rationalize with them. We try to talk them into doing the right thing. We try to talk them into calming down. That doesn't work. Their emotions don't let the thinking brain be there. And so really, I'll just say, okay, you need to go to your room. And we have something called a calm bag. Um, It has things in there like Play-Doh, blowing bubbles, drawing paper, that they can use something to calm themselves down. So they may go to the room, and if they choose the blue blow bubbles, they'll, you know, when you blow bubbles, you take in a breath, you breathe out of breath, you know, you're kind of doing breathing exercises, but then they, after they calm themselves down, it could be an hour later. I mean, it doesn't even have to be in the next five or 10 minutes. Then once they're calm, then we're able to have the conversation about what was really going on. But when those emotions are flared, whether it's their emotions or my emotions sometimes get involved, there is no way to communicate in a healthy way. And I think one of the hardest things is letting the kid go to the room and often slam the door. Oh, of course. Leaving it as that. <laughs> Just knowing that we will take care of the situation in an hour because I want to go chase after them and get it all for yourself now. And that doesn't work. Take that break. Are they usually pretty cooperative when you say time for your combat, go over and blow some bubbles for a while? Are they okay with that normally? You know, what we had to do is train them in non-conflict moments. So we help them create the things and pick out the things and then they understand. And once they get used to it, um, you know, I would say most of the time it's not, I mean, there's sometimes they're just going to be disagreeable no yes. matter what, but most of the time they're able to go and calm themselves down. And actually I'm shocked. Sometimes even after 10 minutes, they'll come and say, okay, I'm ready to talk now. And I'm like, wow, that was, it happens quicker than I thought sometimes. Yeah, uh, for sure. Them, you know, we have to train them to, you know, use the toilet and to eat it with a fork. I mean, just train them what to do to calm themselves down. That's it. Well, Trisha Goyer, our guest, we're going to go to a break. Calming Angry Kids is her book, and we'll come back right after this on Janet Meffer Today.
Hi, this is Janet Mefford. If you're in need of a new health care program, but you missed the open enrollment deadline in December, it's not too late. A special enrollment period is taking place now through August 15th. During this time, you can enroll in the health care program of your choice without the need for a qualifying event. This means you can now enroll in a health care sharing program from Liberty HealthShare with memberships for individuals, couples, and families. You can find a variety of options to best suit your medical needs. Plus, you really can choose the doctor and hospital of your choice. Best of all, membership options start for as low as $199 a month. More than 200,000 Americans trust Liberty HealthShare for their health care needs. What are you waiting for? Discover more about the power of sharing at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT today. For more information, call 855-585-4237, 855-585-4237, or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Fellow Christians are suffering in Africa. This is Janet Mafford. Pastor Lumo ministers in Mozambique near the Indian Ocean. He's been beaten and jailed many times, not merely for what he believes, but for how he lives out his faith. You see, Lumo has been quietly and faithfully sharing the gospel with Muslims, and many are coming to Christ. But extremists have assaulted Lumo, his family, and many in his church. But they're not asking for an end to the persecution they face. Instead, they're praying for God's word to endure and persevere as new followers of Christ. I've seen people being changed by reading the scripture. Giving a Bible to somebody is the greatest gift you can give somebody in life. Through the ministry of Bible League International, you can send God's word to a new believer in Africa. $5 sends one Bible. $100 sends 20. Call now, 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D. Or there's an Open the Floodgates Bibles for Africa banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here and great to have with us Trisha Goyer. Her book, Calming Angry Kids, Help and Hope for Parents in the Whirlwind. And she is a homeschooling mom of 10. God bless you, Trisha. I don't know how you do this. But I think for every Christian parent listening, we can all relate to the concept of children getting mad at times, sometimes irrationally or sometimes related to something more deep and traumatic in the case of some of these children you've talked about whom you've adopted. What do you do, though? Well, here's here's a typical thing. What do you do when the kids fight with each other? What happens when they, mm. they get mad at each other and then you're in the position of having to break up fights all the time? I know that can wear on your patience after a while as well. Exactly. And usually what I'll try to do is you know, separate them and then say, what is making you mad or how come you're angry and letting them verbalize what's going on. Um, it may be my, you know, their sister took their cookies that they were planning to eat. And, you know, just acknowledging first that they are angry. Um, sometimes we will say, calm down, don't talk that way. And we're not acknowledging that they have anger. Um, and then I'll say, okay, you're angry. I would be angry if my sister did that to me too. I will take care of her, but let's talk about how you're handling the situation. Um, and then we'll talk about, you know, being a peacemaker and what can you do instead of yelling at your sister. And I think pulling them away separately because once they're both there and you're trying to like referee between them, yes. that doesn't help. But letting them know that, you know, that would make me angry too, but let's figure out how to handle our anger from this point on and then going talking to the sibling. Okay. You know, you did something to make your sister angry. How would you feel if she did that to you? And just talking to them um, separately really, really helps and letting them see that their behavior impacts other people. Um, it can impact them positively or it can impact them negatively. And my kids still fight. 
all the time, <laughs> but yes. really yeah. helping to pull them apart and helping them see the behavior. Um, then, you know, I could start to see as they start to build their anger, they'll say, you know what, I'm sorry, I didn't treat you that way. And it's really helping to train them to know how to respond in the future. Well, that's really good. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about anger. You don't let the sun go down on your anger mm. or the proverb that I quoted at the beginning of our interview. How do you use the Word of God when you are trying to train your children to behave in a godly way and trying to disciple them? How do you use the Bible in those moments, or how do you prepare those children for those moments before they occur? Absolutely. That is such a good question. So what we try to do is memorize Scripture verses during our homeschool day. That's one of the things we include. So we'll talk about anger, and like you mentioned, don't let our sun, our, the sun go down on our anger. Or even one, one that's really helped us the most is just teaching them the fruit of the Spirit. Um, so I remember I was just having a difficult time with the kids, just not treating each other well and making each other angry. And I just kept praying, like, God, change these kids. And he's like, I've given you my word. <laughs> so <laughs> we memorized the fruit of the Spirit. And as we went through, we could say, okay, are you loving? Are you kind? Are you gentle? And when, once God's word was in their heart, they start to see, well, that wasn't very gentle or that wasn't very kind. But God has given us so many of his tools in the word. And it just takes us taking the time to memorize the scripture. And, you know, a lot of people say, well, we can't memorize it. Just is too hard. You know, if you say the same verse for 30 days in a row, even one time or two times through, and by the end of that month, you can memorize it. And so it's so sure. important for our kids to, to hide God's word in their hearts. Oh, absolutely. And for mom too. I mean, how many times in a, in a parenting moment will a, a verse come into your head and all of a sudden you feel convicted? All right, Lord, I need to calm down. I need to get myself <laughs> exactly. together. Because it, it is hard. It, it does strain you at times as the mom when you're trying to keep it together. Do you struggle at all with modeling patience um, or, or dealing with the issue of being a good example for your children? And how do you cope with that? Yeah, you know, with uh, my biological kids, I never thought I had an anger problem. I mean, there's times I get mad. But when I had these kids, it's almost like they knew, uh, the adopted kids knew how to to push my buttons. Mm. <laughs> they just knew how to really get me mad. And every time I'd be yelling, I'm like, this is not me. This is not my nature. <laughs> And one thing that I learned is not to escalate with our kids. And I, I talked to one of the therapists about that, and she said, you know, of course, they want to push their buttons, because when you escalate with them, suddenly it's not about them and their problem. It's about mom and her yelling. True. And all of a sudden, they feel like a victim. You're yelling at me. You're so mean. And then you can't even deal with their problem, because, again, I have to apologize. I ask for forgiveness for yelling yes. and for my attitude. So that's really helped me just to say, you know, when I escalate, they win. And so it helps me to just remember to take a deep breath, unclench my fist, stay calm and realize that um, I need to stay calm so we can deal with the, the root of the problem. That's really smart. Which is what's going on in their heart. Right. And as you address in your book, there are different forms of anger, but there are also different age levels. For example, when you mm -hmm. talk about tiny children, if you're talking about a baby who's crying because her diaper is dirty, or you're talking about a toddler who's just needing a nap, what about those really small children who are not rational? They don't have the impulse control. They don't have the words to be able to convey to you, I'm mad and here's why. What do you say, for example, to the young mom on how to deal with anger in small children? And, and you know, you always have to worry these days about advising Christians you don't want to lose your temper with a very small mm -hmm. child and possibly hurt that child when really what you need to do is control yourself. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, realizing like if we're feeling ourselves getting emotional with a crying baby, I mean, it's just okay to put them in their crib and walk away. Yeah. Give yourself a chance to calm down, give themselves a chance to calm down. But I think with toddlers, one of the important things is that we need to prepare for angry moments like they're going to happen. And a lot of times these two, three, four years ago, they're not four year old kids. They're not prepared for what's going to happen. For example, my oldest daughter, um, she would get so angry when we go to church and all these people were trying to talk to her and she would just get so mad and I didn't understand it. And then I came to realize she didn't know how to respond when Mm. someone talked to her about how pretty her hair looked or her dress. She would just get so overwhelmed and anxious that she didn't know how to respond and so she would just get angry. And so we would practice at home and I'd say, okay, I'm going to practice. You look nice today. And then you say, thank you very much. That's <laughs> all you have to do. And just preparing our kids for whatever situation. Maybe we know that a friend's coming over and our kids have a hard time sharing and just saying, okay, your, your little buddy's coming over. Choose some toys that we can put up that you don't have to share. You know, so their favorite things. Let's just put them aside. Then there's not going to be huge fights. They don't, you know, maybe they just got it two days ago for their birthday. They don't want, they're not ready to share and then say, okay, let's choose some things that we can share. Um, And then, you know, their friend comes over, all of a sudden they're running up, look at, you could play with my ball. You know, it's just preparing them ahead of time. I think so many times as adults, we know how responses should be. We know how we should act, but it's really training the kids so they don't get overwhelmed and don't get angry in those Mm, moments. That's right. What do you do about teaching your older kids how to manage their anger? Because at that age, it becomes something different. You know, I'll say to my kids, for example, I don't care if you disagree with me, just, you know, control your voice. I mean, I don't want to be screamed at, whatever. I think a lot of parents go through that. But do you have any tricks of the trade for helping your older kids manage their anger? When you're angry, these are the rules. Yeah, and I think so many times, um, you know, our kids will want new responsibilities. And we'll say, okay, I know that you want whatever new responsibility it is, but let's work on the things that I'm seeing right now. And so when it's a moment that's not an angry moment, we could talk about, okay, you were very disrespectful to your dad, or you raise your voice um, when you're talking to me. Let's work on those things, and then we can get the new driver's license or the new <laughs> cell phone or whatever you're wanting, and letting them see that their actions have come with responsibility. And if they're going to be responsible people, um, they need to be able to control their voice, control their actions. I think so many times kids assume that they can just move to the next level of having responsibility. But if we see things in their lives that they need to work on, that's a perfect time to teach them. This is what responsibility is. And um, yes, you can disagree with me, but if you disagree with me, you know, find a time to talk to me about it. But shouting in my face is not going to get you um, what you want. But talking about talking to them about it in a situation where it's not an angry moment. Um, And sometimes I'll just take one of my older kids when we're going on errands, they're sitting next to me in the seat and I'll I'll be able to bring up the conversation. You know, that wasn't very respectful the way you treated dad last night. It's not a conflict moment. We're able to sit side by side. We're able to talk through something. And again, it's another level of training them because, you know, I'll say, you know, if you're in the, in the real world and you're dealing with an employer, if you talk that way, you're not going to have a job for yes, long. So right. just, it's really a training um, situation when it comes to those older kids. Yeah. And so much of what you're saying is, is good common sense where you say in a different moment, deal with this or deal with that. Send the child to another room in the midst of the temper tantrum or talk about why you were angry when things calm down. A lot of it is in the timing, isn't it? When to have those conversations. It, 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, so many times we are, we could be saying all the right things. We could talk about respect. We could speak, you know, talking about what God wants and how we're supposed to treat each other. But if it's in the moment when their emotions are flaring, it's like we're the, the teacher on Charlie Brown. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yes. you know, nothing is going through at all. Yeah. Um, and then in those moments when you take time to go get a sonic drink and sit side by side, you could talk about those things. And then they're open to listening. They're not open to listening in the middle of conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the name of the book is Calming Angry Kids. Trisha Goyer, our guest. And Trisha, God bless you. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate your wisdom and advice on the issue of anger in kids. Thank you, Janet, for having me. All right. God bless you. Thanks a lot for being here. And thank you for listening to Janet Meffer today. As always, our website, JanetMeffer.com. We'll see you there.